Well, hello, everyone out there listening to this new episode of GodPod. It's uh, good to have you with us today, wherever you're listening from, wherever you are in the world, whether you're in your room um, listening to this uh, or um, going out, running around the neighbourhood or wherever you are, whether you're in lockdown or even beyond lockdown, it's very good to have you with us on GodPod. And today we have um, uh, the usual team of myself, Graham Tomlin, and uh, Jane Williams as well. Hello. And we also have Michael Lloyd, fresh from his bookline study in Oxford. Well, I don't know how fresh, but uh, certainly booklined <laughs> study, that's that's for sure. And uh, we have a guest today, and uh, we are really delighted to have someone we wanted to have on the God Pod for uh, quite some time. We have um, Catherine Sonderegger, uh, who is the William Mead Chair in Systematic Theology at Virginia Theological Seminary in the United States. So, Kate, it's great to have you with us. Welcome to God Pod. Thank you. It's very good to be here, Bishop. Good. Well, it is, um, we're, I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, um, not least since I, I read um, certainly volume one of um, Kate's uh, wonderful systematic theology. Um, volume one is, um, is on the doctrine of God. I think volume two is out now out as well. I think you're working on volume three. Is that right, Kate? That's right. So the second volume sets out the um, doctrine of the um, Trinity as the processional inner life of God. So you, volume three will be on the missions of the persons. So so how many might there be? Uh, is it going to be Bart-like Bart in its kind of, you know, 23 volume, part five? Well, it, um, that would be the only way, I'm afraid, that it would be like Bart, but it <laughs> does seem to be spilling over uh, all of the boundaries that I set to it. I, I had originally thought that the first volume would be the doctrine of God, um, attributes and Trinity. Um, and I found that the first uh, topic, uh, the divine attributes required all of my attention and um, was so, um, so profound and so beautiful that it filled up all the words that Fortress Press gave me. Um, and then I had in mind that volume two would be the dogma of the Holy Trinity. Um, and I would do processions, persons, missions. Um, but to treat some of the matters that I thought central to processions and persons, um, to actually defend what, what is called a speculative doctrine of God. Uh, it took all the, the words again. Um, so I, I think maybe it's, it's fitting to have uh, three volumes on the doctrine of God. Um, and uh, so that means I'll have to be at least four because I'll have to say something about creatures at some point. Um, for it to be uh, uh, systematics and, you know, maybe um, as God gives me strength, uh, it will continue. I, I'm, I'm content with it taking however long it takes. Well, it's, we're looking forward to that. And certainly my reading of volume one was um, 
was there. And I, I read it one summer holiday. I think my wife thought I was rather strange reading a book of systematic theology <laughs> I was on my holiday. She must have known that you were strange before that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, she's known that for some time. But um, but it was just a work that was. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's 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 dense. It's testing, but it's it's hugely um, readable. Uh, and also a real work of spiritual theology, I, I thought. I mean, there are academic books that you read that are rather dry and and don't really take you much into the heart of God. But this one did. It was a it was a work that was soaked in prayer and in worship, and um, was a a model of that kind of theology, which is partly why I I, I really enjoyed reading it. And so, um, in case I wondered if we what a place to start. And we're recording this uh, in March of 2021. We're still in the middle of the pandemic. Um, maybe hopefully coming towards the end of it, so certainly here in the UK, people are getting their vaccines and and uh, we can begin to see a bit of a way out of it. Um, but uh, we're still in it at the same time and we're kind of reflecting on the last year. And um, and I think one theme that is right at the heart of the um, of, of volume one of the book where you speak about the, you know, the one God uh, is this idea that, um, I think you, you start with this idea that the perfect oneness of God, that there is a a kind of war on idolatry at the heart of scripture. Um, this is this call to worship the one, the one true God. And yet the nature of that one true God is marked by invisibility. That God has no form or image or likeness. There's an essential sort of hiddenness uh, to this God. And um, I just wanted if you could relate that a little bit to the experience that we've been through in the last year, this experience perhaps uh, where God has felt perhaps for many people a little bit distant behind the, um, you know, the kind of connection of a screen or that kind of inability to kind of access sacraments and um, in-person communion with others. Um, how, how is your thinking on the hiddenness of God uh, related to our experience over the last year of this pandemic, do you think? Mm, that's a, a wonderful question. And uh, indeed, um, many of the students at our seminary have raised this question as, as parishioners have. Um, uh, where is, is God present in the pandemic? And I, th I think this sense of divine presence is one of the, um, the, the central elements of the spiritual theological life. Um, and it's one of the great themes of Holy Scripture. I, um, it does seem to me that one of the witnesses that we see certainly in the, the prophet Isaiah, um, in the um, disclosure to Moses at, at Sinai, um, in the opening of Romans, is the way in which God's presence is also a kind of hiddenness. Um, uh, God discloses his power and perfect deity, Paul says, um, in the things he has made, but they are the invisible things of God. And, and so it, it's my sense that, that God uh, is uh, revealed um, in such a way that his revelation remains his invisibility, his transcendence and great reserve. 
And this is what makes divine presence so difficult for us creatures to fathom. That it, it is that um, it, God is uh, present not as um, other creaturely objects are, um, but God's nearness is also consistent with God's great reserve and mystery. And so um, this, this is part of the, um, the acknowledgement of the true God against all idols, that um, God's very nearness is a, a kind of invisibility, a kind of hiddenness. And I, perhaps we are uh, coming up against this in the pandemic when the ways in which we have um, had an, an ordinary encounter with God sacramentally, um, in worship, um, in, in the sanctuaries of churches, uh, these have been taken from us if your experience is like ours. Um, I've not been in the nave of my uh, worshiping congregation for a year now. Um, uh, so this is, um, this is a, a moment where God's um, uh, hiddenness, which I think is another way of speaking of God's omnipresence, God's presence in the world, it, this intense nearness to his creation in his own majestic invisibility is something that we might deeply pray upon and reflect in this season of Lent. And of course, for many people, this is a season of lamentation and grief as well. And this is also a time where, where God is present as the, the bearer of grief, but also in, um, as the father in secret in cryptos, in great reserve. Sorry, Jane. You sure? Um, I, I think one of the things that really struck me in, in reading Volume One was um, was this the set. I mean, hiddenness is not absence, yes. and it is actually attending to the um, uh, to the reality of how God is present. I mean, there you, you speak with um, extraordinary power about the intimacy of God's knowledge of us I think you call it first-hand knowledge of us yes. um and um and, and, and so you're talking like a mystic it seems to me in, in this um systematic theology it's one of the things I absolutely love about it um that sense of um having to wait upon God's way of being present um mm. which is about which is as much about our creatureliness it's about that that um, how creatureliness and transcendence meet, isn't it? Um, yes. Prof profoundly interesting and, and helpful um, and mind-boggling idea, I found. Uh, thank you. I, th I think it's so easy for us to translate uh, hiddenness into absence. Um, 
often the ascension of uh, Christ is is depicted as a kind of absence from the world. I I think this is um, a um, a mishearing of that theme of God's loftiness uh, and God's mystery. That this actually is as you say so well, Jane, this, this is God's intimacy to us. Um, and God is present in this way that is not um, locatable as, uh, as a creature is. Um, and, it's, and we see that in, in God's knowledge of us. And it's not a way in which we are capable of being present to each other. It's a much a much deeper, closer kind of presence, um, but it's not what we're used to. Right, right, and that we resist and rebel against. I, I think when when Augustine uh, discovers that God is more intimate to him than he is to himself, he he is reflecting on just this kind of overwhelming intimacy that is part of the majesty of God. And, and we always are uh, present at a distance to one another and even to ourselves, um, our, our inwardness is, is tangled up with our, our self-deception and uh, our misremembering. And, uh, and I, in one way, I think the confessions can be read as a, a profound reflection on the difference between the divine intimacy and our intimacy to mm. ourselves. Mm. So can, interesting. Can I ask, um, Kate, how far you see God's hiddenness as a consequence of, of the fall, of the distance that we have created between us and, and, and our creator? And how far is it intrinsic to the infinity and eternity uh, of God and his distinction from the world? I mean, I tend to see it as a, as a consequence of the fall. He wants mm. to see him face to face. That's the end goal. So would he not have set it up that way in the first place? And Genesis 3 seems to picture that kind of delightful intimacy in that kind of way. But, but you seem to be suggesting that it's a facet in some way, his hiddenness is a facet of his omnipresence, and I find that really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think, uh, of course, uh, the doctrine of sin has to enter into any of our reflection about God's presence to us as creatures. Uh, it's one of the reasons why idolatry is that, that twin theme, that is uh, rebellion against God's own um, proper and true holiness and presence. Um, but I think that that is a, uh, a deepening and a, uh, uh, an alienation of rebellion against what is a, a primary mode of God's presence, which is to be without form and likeness. Um, and so this, this kind of um, invisibility, this, this hiddenness from our ordinary forms of recognition, this I think is how God is intimate to the world. Um, that's I think um, received as a kind of 
um, absence in um, the the world after the fall um, as a, um, a a cruelty or a, a deadness. Um, and I, but I think it, in fact, uh, when we see uh, God face to face, I I think. Um, we will we will see this uh, uh, luminous light that that God is um, that uh, illumines everything, all the creatures, um, and uh, is Himself the the light of the city, and light is is seen in an odd sense. It's um, it's what um, makes others visible. How would you relate that idea of hiddenness to the idea of divine judgment? Because, um, again, I mean, maybe this is a, a variation on Mike's question, because um, you know, there is a sense in scripture of the, you know, the intrinsic invisibility of God. He has no form and, and likeness. And yet there are those moments where it seems that God withdraws. God sort of moves away from his people or whatever in, in, in judgment. And, um, and I, again, I wonder how that relates to maybe our experiences over the last year or so, which for, for many people has felt like a, a maybe God withdrawing. Not everyone has felt that, but, you know, that sense of, um, you know, is this, and there's been some really interesting discussions on the, the relationship between the pandemic and judgment, not in a kind of clumsy way that, you know, God has sent this upon us because we've been bad, but, you know, what is the relationship between this and, you know, is there a kind of the, the you know, the, the, the hiddenness of God in this? And has that been a, a form of divine withdrawal and hiddenness? And how does that relate to God's intrinsic hiddenness? So, you know, if, if there is a kind of hiddenness of God at the, at the moment, a sense of, um, you know, God being, you know, withdrawing from us, how does that relate to kind of the intrinsic, uh, you know, kind of usual the hiddenness of God, the fact that we just can't see him most of the time? Yep. Mm, that, yeah, that's wonderful. I th I think always in scripture there's there's something of this doubling. Um, what in the second volume I I call um, uh, following some of these uh, current Thomas uh, uh, a redoublement, a, a doubling in the doctrine of God. So so there's a a way in which hiddenness is something that is is fully benign it is the the intimacy of god uh, the mode of god's intimacy to creation um, but there is also a way in which hiddenness is a turning his face away um, this this um, moment of um, of god's judgment and we see this in the um, people Israel, um, we see it in our our Lord's judgment of the the um, creatures of this earth. Um, it's um, everywhere in the letters of Paul and the Revelation, um, where where um, hiddenness is an expression of the divine wrath um, and judgment. And I do think uh, in, in my own country that, um, that the judgment of God has been um, 
made manifest in the way in which the profound inequalities in in healthcare and income um, have made the pandemic rest heavily upon those who already suffer in this society, uh, African-Americans and Latinx. And they uh, often are the people who are working in the jobs that we white elites have discovered are now really the necessary jobs, the uh, working in grocery stores and drug stores and um, putting goods and food on the shelf. Uh, and they have, uh, they have uh, borne the, the labor, the burden of the son of the day. Um, and I, I think um, there is a, a, a way in which the, the, the deep sin of that is being laid bare by this pandemic. And that's a, it's a kind of judgment that is a, a, um, a secondary form of the hiddenness of God. It's, it's a bitter irony that that judgment, the pain of it seems to be being borne by the people um, who are uh, already bearing the pain of the world. Um, and so exposing our white middle class culpability in that doesn't, because we're not yet bearing any of the apparent cost of that judgment. Um, and so it, it it's quite tricky to explain how that's judgment isn't it how that feels what that actually means to say that is God's judgment mm -hmm. right um, um, especially because um, what it it means to be an elite is to be shielded from the the costs that are are actually present in a society to be um, to be buffered from those anxieties and from the risk. Um, but I, I do think um, that, uh, that um, I and, and my, my class stand under the judgment of God. Um, and that this, the reality of the world, um, that this a form of injustice that has been mm, covered over mm. for people like me has been peeled back uh, the traditional reading of Revelation, that, that, that disclosure, that unveiling has taken place. Um, and I, I think the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States has has been a, uh, a movement, I think, where some of us uh, white elites have, um, have experienced properly that judgment. As it, it, we have not, of course, borne the cost, um, but I think um, we are, are having a reckoning with what, um, 
I've, I've learned to call whiteness I, uh, with a particular way in which my own shielded experience has been put together. Mm. And, but I agree with you, it, it, is, uh, it is difficult to uh, express how it is um, that God's judgment will be visited on those of us who are the elite. I want to probe a little bit this concept of God withdrawing. Um, I kind of understand that in judgment, perhaps more easily than in other ways. Um, God is, is uh, it's difficult for him to remain in any way in the presence of cruelty, say, that that gives it any place or time or attention or positivity. I get that. There are bits of the Christian tradition that suggest that he withdraws for other reasons as well, um, in order to create a greater hunger in us, uh, to draw us more closely to himself. Um, and that can be thought of as playful. It can be thought of as quite capricious and... Uh, its own form of cruelty, in a way. Um, and I wonder what kind of language you can use of God withdrawing that avoids some of those uh, God playing fast and loose with us. Yes, I, I do. I'm I'm too much of a, an Augustinian to uh, to use that kind of language. I I think God is is uh, light and and order and and the good and it it touches on the benevolence of God I think to to speak of um, God playing dice with the universe to borrow that famous phrase um, I I think it instead always um, there is this this uh, rupture now between us and God um, because of our, our sin. And, and therefore the, the way in which we um, experience God's uh, hiddenness and God's judgment, it is always experienced through this condition of sin. Um, I think this, you know, because of that, because it it so indwells us and indwells this this world that we have built up, um, we we find it difficult to uh, to discern when when withdrawal is. Uh, a form of God's overwhelming nearness, uh, God's uh, intense presence um, that should awaken in us um, this cry, um, uh, depart from me for I am a sinner. Yeah. Uh, and and when, when it is uh, God's uh, holiness that can have 
uh, no part, at, as you say, with with cruelty or, um, uh, or with um, defilement. Uh, I, and I, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the spiritual tradition has such a long history of very fine-grained discernments about desolation and consolation and the way in which desolation is usually ultimately seen to be a form of consolation. So um, I- Thank you for the, for the heart of the, the cross as, the, as both the place of the simultaneous Substance, but also presence of God. Yes. This is God hanging on a cross, and yet God at that moment in Jesus Christ cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the kind of moment where the kind of absence and presence of God are kind of seen. And I mean, I, I, mean, I, I love what you were saying, and James was pointing this out a bit earlier on this idea that God, God alone can be present as the invisible one. That, you know, the, the idols always have to take visible form. They can't be present invisible, invisibly. They always have to take some form of stone or wood or whatever else it might be. And, um, and I'm just interested in this, this relationship between sort of atheism and idolatry in the sense that, it, that atheism seems to me mistakes hiddenness for absence. Mm -hmm. It simply right. thinks because God is hidden, he can't be there. He's absent. Um, and therefore has to somehow locate meaning and significance in visible things, which is where it leads to the kind of idolatry uh, at the end of the day. Um, but this idea that, you know, that, that God's presence with us is always in hidden form. And I guess you can sort of see that even in, even in Christ, you know, the, the fact that it was quite possible to meet Jesus in the flesh, shake his hand, you know, walk along with him and entirely miss the fact that you were in the presence of God. Um, he was present, but it was entirely possible to miss it because that the presence of God was sort of hidden in the in the kind of the flesh of Jesus Christ. Um, so yeah, I'm not quite sure where this is going, but I'm just just thinking about these sort of themes of um, of, of you know God as the only one who is present to us in this invisible way, and so uh, yet how easily we, we mistake that for God's absence. Right, right. Uh, over and over, we. Uh, when we ask, where is God in this? And I, I think this is a, an important um, spiritual question. I, I don't mean to, to rule it out, but, but often we are asking, um, where is God uh, visible in a, in a kind of um, tangible way that is the uh, mode of creatures um, or of idols um, uh, God is present, I think, directly in the world in this uh, invisible way. Um, and, it, and it's for that reason, I think, that we see in someone like Athanasius this, um, this insistence that, uh, that the eternal word is, is present in the flesh assumed. Um, and also reigning in heaven. This, this combination is, I think, an, an expression of the conviction that, that God can be uh, present in 
this uh, remarkable, um, intimate way in Jesus Christ and remain the, um, the hidden, omnipresent sovereign of the universe. And, um, and this makes Christ's revelation of God uh, a particular instance of how delicate and complex uh, revelation and judgment are. Um, because as you say so well, um, Bishop, that um, it, it was um, the, the common experience of Christ to have those meet him and uh, be take offense at him, to, to laugh at him. I'm, I'm really interested by the difference that the incarnation makes here. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I get, I take Graham's point entirely that idols always have to take some physical form, God alone doesn't. And yet he chooses to do so in the person of Jesus. And that seems to uh, <laughs> complicate and enrich things significantly. I'm thinking of two areas in particular. One is here alone, flesh can be worshipped, yes. Physic physicality can be worshipped. Uh, safely, mm -hmm. appropriately, and secondly, uh, God can at last be represented, uh, and the the kind of iconoclasm uh, controversy of the eighth century uh, said precisely that that the, the incarnation has actually made a difference, and and Christian artists, it, there is an appropriateness to the depiction of God post incarnation that there wasn't before that. So. The, the hiddenness of God is is hugely complicated by the incarnation. Yes, that that's so beautifully said, and I I've just been uh, working my way through the tertia pars of the the Summa, and you can see that Thomas has been reading those very councils very closely, and um, and has. Um, particularly the reception of Cyril on his mind um, and takes up these matters directly of, of uh, in what way the corporeal uh, flesh of Christ can be depicted, how it can be adored, how it can be worshipped, and what uh, came to be called the communication of idioms throughout those, those questions. Um, and I, I think this is, um, uh, of course, one of the objections that other monotheists, uh, Jews and uh, Muslims raise against the Christian faith, that this is a kind of idolatry, a kind of paganism uh, that underlies everything in Christian monotheism. Now, I think this is uh, one of the reasons why the, uh, uh, the particular uh, way in which God is made flesh, uh, this, I think, uh, as well as assuming, assuming flesh, but being made flesh, it has to be treated with particular care, that it, um, it is... Um, 
God's uh, God's own flesh. I think Cyril is is right about this. Um, but the other things that follow from um, Ath the Athanasian tradition, I think, still hold um, that God is present in God's unique form, um, which uh, includes uh, his uh, majesty, his holiness, uh, his hiddenness. Um, and this we see constantly in um, in the fact that the Petrine confession must be uh, disclosed uh, to Peter, it, flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you. It, it, it is not um, seen, but is, uh, well, it's perhaps better to say seen invisibly. Um, and this, this theme of hiddenness and incarnation, I think, I think is uh, central to a proper doctrine of the person of Christ, the hypostatic union. So we can't wait for that volume, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, these are the things that um, I've been really um, wrestling with, and they're they're um, deep in the the mystery of the the union. You know, it's very it's all of these these elements make it easy to to say that the incarnation never really happened that the that deity never really touches down mm. um, and becomes enfleshed um, um, so to to think of enfleshment of god in a way that also preserves the the proper holiness and mystery of God. This, this is the task of Christology, I think. Just wanted to explore one other area before we finish, so we could go on for, for, forever on this um, fascinating discussion. But um, I think, Jane, you, you referred earlier on to the kind of the relationship between this sort of theology and a form of mysticism. And I'm just thinking of that particularly mystic, mystical experience of, you know, what St. John of the Cross called the, the dark night of the soul, that, that sort of often... Um, times, you know, Mother Teresa spoke about it uh, you know, in, in her diaries. It seems to be a sort of common experience of the greatest of saints, that that experience of the absence uh, of God or the kind of feeling of the loss of, uh, of God. And um, uh, I suppose relating also to people who experience depression and, you know, um, uh, mental health issues where maybe a very strong sense of the presence of God disappears under the cloud of depression and how how this idea of the hiddenness of God can relate to those kinds of experience whether sort of mystical experience or whether um you know just sort of medical um impact of uh, um, conditions like depression or whatever because it seems to me that this idea of the you know the the hidden presence of God has quite some powerful pastoral implications um, for people whose experience is actually of what appears to be the absence of God and they fear might simply be his absence. Um, but actually, maybe it might just be his hidden presence. I took you perhaps to be addressing Jane. <laughs> <laughs> no, all questions addressed to you, Kate. 
Yeah. I, I was hoping you would take this up. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do. I think um, discerning these um, complex layers and interconnections of creaturely life, um, the the way in which our our biological organization, our our psychological state, our inwardness, um, the the way in which we move and inhabit a world, um, and what has been done to us, what we have suffered in this world, that um, those things are ingredient in this larger quest to see God's claim on our life. Um, and, and I think um, part of theology's task is to, uh, is to attempt not to, not to tidy it up or, or to explain it away, uh, but to draw attention to the way in which God is present to creatures as complex as we are, our, our full social constitution, our, our profound inwardness, the, the brokenness of our, um, our intellectual and psychological emotional selves, uh, that God is present to all of this in a way that demands our our deepest uh, prayerful discernment. And it it's not, I think it's not ever one thing. And when, when someone comes to us with uh, a, a spiritual crisis, uh, a sense of God's uh, judgment on their life, um, absence to it, um, we can expect that it will uh, touch every aspect of that person's life. The, they're, they're sleeping and eating, they're, they're down sitting and uprising, they, they, their work and their, their play, what, what people have done to them and that they have not even seen the scars in their life. Uh, the things that they have done they don't even recall. These elements of the mystery that Augustine says we are to ourselves, um, those, those are ingredient in discerning um, God's presence, God's judgment, um, God's, God's nearness and judgment, which can often be experienced as absence. Um, and um, God's um, calling us home. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a deep um, a spiritual task that I th I think theology should should um, should take on should respect. I find this an absolutely fascinating discussion. Uh, one of the, and the thing that came to mind almost kind of summing it up, um, was T.S. Eliot's choruses from the rock, O oh, Light Invisible, we yeah. praise thee, 
too bright for mortal vision. Uh, and I think that I, I find that quite helpful, that it's not that God is kind of too dim for mortal vision, right. too bright for mortal vision, in the same way that the resurrected Jesus, I don't see him as being too insubstantial so he can pass through walls, but so substantial that mere walls can offer no, no defense, kind of thing, no obstruction. Right. That, right. that somehow, for me, gets over some of the paradoxes of, of, of hiddenness. That it's not, it's not that God is not communicating and it's not that he doesn't want to communicate. It is that in some senses there is so much of it that we are struggling to apprehend it. <laughs> Yes, it beautifully said, Mike. I, I think this is one reason why um, Thomas loves that Aristotelian figure of the uh, bat that cannot endure the light. And that, um, it's, it's just um, it, this, it, this sense that there are, are night creatures, bats and owls, for whom the, the light is is um, so intense that they cannot bear it. This is uh, what we are like. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much for um, stimulating a really fascinating discussion today. We've um, run out of time and uh, we need to draw this God pod to a close, but um, we are really grateful to you. We're grateful to, um, uh, in some ways, the technology that's enabled us to have this conversation across the Atlantic in uh, real time. And it's um, Good of you to be getting up on what is uh, fairly early in the morning for you, um, middle of the day for us. So, um, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today on GodPod. It was an honour and a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, if anybody listening to this is uh, keen to read more, you can um, uh, find um, Kate's Systematic Theology, Catherine Sonderega, um, Volume 1 and 2 are out already, published by Fortress Press, uh, Volume 3, I think, on the way. So, um Thank you again to Kate, thank you to Jane and to Mike and to all of you listening to GodPod today and we will be back with another episode before too long. Goodbye. Thank Bye. you so much.